Book four, part one of the Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nicole Lee. The Memoirs of Chateaubriand, volume three, by François René de Chateaubriand. Translated by Alexander Teixeira de Matos. Book four, part one. Bonaparte had refused to embark in a French ship, setting value at that time only on the English navy, because it was victorious. He had forgotten his hatred, the calumnies, the outrages with which he had overwhelmed perfidious Albion. He saw none now worthy of his admiration, save the triumphant party, and it was the undaunted that conveyed him to the harbour of his first exile. He was not without anxiety as to the manner in which he would be received would the french garrison hand over to him the territory which it was guarding of the italian islanders some wished to call in the english others to remain free of all masters the tricolor and the white flag waved on near headlands all was arranged nevertheless when it became known that bonaparte was bringing millions with him opinions generously decided to receive the august victim the civil and religious authorities were brought round to the same conviction joseph philip arigi the vicar-general issued a charge divine providence said the pious injunction has decreed that in future we shall be the subjects of napoleon the great the island of elba raised to so sublime an honour receives the lord's anointed in its bosom we order that a solemn te deum be sung by way of thanksgiving etc the emperor had written to general d'alem commanding the french garrison that he must make known to the people of elba that he had selected their island for his residence in consideration of the gentleness of their manners and of their climate he set foot on land at porto ferrajo amid the dual salute of the english frigate which had brought him and the batteries on shore thence he was taken under the parish canopy to the church where the te deum was sung the beadle the master of ceremonies was a short fat man who was unable to join his hands across his person napoleon was next conducted to the mayor's where his lodging was prepared they unfurled the new imperial standard a white ground intersected by a red stripe strewn with three gold bees three violins and two basses followed him with scrapings of delight the throne hastily erected in the public ballroom was decorated with gilt paper and pieces of scarlet cloth the actor's side of the prisoner's nature accommodated itself to these displays napoleon made a serious business of trifles even as he used to amuse his court with little old-time games inside his palace at the tuileries going out afterwards to kill men by way of pastime he formed his household it consisted of four chamberlains three orderly officers and two harbingers of the palace he stated that he would receive the ladies twice a week at eight o'clock in the evening he gave a ball he took possession for his own residence of the pavilion intended for the engineers bonaparte was constantly meeting in his life the two sources from which it had issued, democracy and the royal power. His strength was derived from the citizen masses, his rank from his genius, and therefore you see him pass without effort, from the market square to the throne, from the kings and queens who crowded round him at Erfurt, to the bakers and oilmen who danced in his barn at Porto Ferrajo. He had something of the people among princes, and of the prince among the people. At five o'clock in the morning, in silk stockings and buckled shoes, he presided over his masons in the island of elba established in his empire inexhaustible in iron since the days of virgil insula inexhaustis calibum generosa metallis bonaparte had not forgotten the outrages to which he had lately been subjected he
he had not renounced his intention of tearing off his winding-sheet, but it suited him to seem buried only to make some appearance of a phantom around his monument. That is why he was eager, as though thinking of nothing else, to go down into his quarries of specular iron and adamant. One would have taken him for the ex-inspector of mines of his former states. He repented of having once appropriated the revenue of the forges of Ilba to the Legion of Honour. Five hundred thousand francs now seemed to him worth more than a blood-bathed cross on the breast of his grenadiers. What was I thinking of, he said? But I have issued many stupid decrees of that nature. He made a commercial treaty with Leghorn, and proposed to make another with Genoa. At all hazards he began to make five or six furlongs of high road, and designed the sites of four large towns, just as Dido laid out the boundaries of Carthage. A philosopher, who had seen too much of human greatness, he declared that he intended thenceforth to live like a justice of the peace in an English county, and notwithstanding, on climbing a height which overlooks Porto Ferrajo, these words escaped him, at the sight of the sea which flowed up on every side at the foot of the cliffs. The devil! It must be owned that my island is very small. He had visited his domain within a few hours. He wished to join to it a rock called Pianosa. Europe will accuse me, he said, laughing, of already having made a conquest. The Allied powers made merry over the fact that they had in derision left him four hundred soldiers. He needed no more to bring them all back to the flag. Napoleon's presence on the coast of Italy, which had witnessed the commencement of his glory, and which retains his memory, agitated everybody. Murat was his neighbour. His friends, strangers secretly or publicly landed at his retreat. His mother and his sister, the Princess Pauline, visited him. They expected soon to see Marie-Louise and her son arriving. A woman did in fact appear with a child. She was received with great mystery, and went to live in a secluded villa in the most remote corner of the island. On the shores of Ogaija, Calypso spoke of her love to Ulysses, who, instead of listening to her, thought of how to defend himself against the suitors. After two days' repose, the swan of the north put out to sea again, to land among the myrtles of Baja, carrying away her little one in her white yawl. If we had been less trustful, it would have been easy for us to perceive an approaching catastrophe. Bonaparte was too near his cradle and his conquests. His funeral island should have been more distant and surrounded by more waves. It is inexplicable how the Allies had come to think of banishing Napoleon to the rocks where he was to serve his apprenticeship in exile. Was it possible to believe that at the sight of the Apennines, that when smelling the powder of the fields of Montenotte, Ariola, and Marengo, that on discovering Venice, Rome, and Naples, his three fair slaves, his heart would not be seized with irresistible temptations? Had they forgotten that he had stirred up the earth, and that he had admirers and debtors everywhere, all of whom were his accomplices? His ambition was deceived, not extinguished. Misfortune and revenge rekindled its flames. When the Prince of Darkness from the verge of the created universe looked upon man and the world, he resolved to destroy them. Before bursting forth, the terrible captive restrained himself for some weeks. In the huge public bank at Faro, which he was holding, his genius negotiated a fortune or a kingdom. The Fouché, the Guzmans d'Alfarache, swarmed. The great actor had long made his police the home of melodrama, and had reserved the upper stage for himself. He amused himself with the vulgar victims who disappeared through the trap-doors of his theatre. Bonapartism, in the first year of the Restoration, passed on from simple desire to action, in the measure as its hopes increased, and as it became better acquainted with the weak character of the Bourbons. When the intrigue had been hatched without, it was hatched within, and the conspiracy became flagrant. Under the able administration of M. Ferrand, M. de la Vallette undertook the correspondence. The mails of the monarchy carried the dispatches of the empire, Concealment was abandoned. 
the caricatures foretold a desired return. One saw eagles entering by the windows of the palace of the Tuileries, through the doors of which issued a flock of turkeys. The nain jaune of Vert spoke of plume de canne. Warnings came from every side, and were disbelieved. The Swiss government had gone out of its way to no purpose to inform His Majesty's government of the intrigues of Joseph Bonaparte, who had retreated to the Pays de Vaux. A woman arriving from Elba gave the most circumstantial details of what was happening at Porto Ferrajo, and the police sent her to prison. People held for certain that Napoleon would not venture any attempt before the dissolution of the Congress, and that, in any case, his views would turn upon Italy. Others, still better advised, prayed that the little corporal, the ogre, the prisoner, might land on the French coast. That would be too great a stroke of luck. They would settle him at one blow. M. Pozzo di Bergo declared at Vienna that the delinquent would be strung up to the nearest tree. Were it possible to have certain papers, one would there find the proof that, as early as 1814, a military conspiracy was contrived, and went side by side with the political conspiracy which the Prince de Talleyrand was conducting at Vienna, at Fouché's instigation. Napoleon's friends wrote to him that, if he did not hasten his return, he would find his place taken at the Tuileries by the Duc d'Orléans. They imagined that this revelation served to hurry the Emperor's return. I am convinced of the existence of these plottings, but I also believe that the determinative cause which decided Bonaparte was simply the nature of his genius. The conspiracy of Drouet d'Erlon and Lefebvre d'Enouet had broken out. A few days before those generals rose in arms, I was dining with Monsieur le Maréchal Sceau, who had been appointed Minister of War on the 3rd of December 1814. A simpleton was describing Louis XVIII's time of exile at Hartwell. The marshal listened to each detail. He answered with the words, That's historical. They used to bring His Majesty's slippers. That's historical. On days of abstinence, the king used to take three new laid eggs before commencing his dinner. That's historical. This reply struck me. When a government is not solidly established, every man whose conscience goes for nothing becomes, according to the greater or lesser amount of energy in his character, a quarter or a half or three quarters of a conspirator. He awaits the decision of fortune. More traitors are made by events than by opinions. Suddenly the telegraph announced to Napoleon's braves, and to the doubters, that the man had landed. Monsieur hurried to Lyon with the Duke d'Orléans and Marshal Macdonald, and returned forthwith. Marshal So, denounced in the Chamber of Deputies, gave up his office on the 11th of March to the Duc de Feltre. Bonaparte found facing him, as Minister of War of Louis the Eighteenth in 1815, the general who had been his last Minister of War in 1814. The boldness of the enterprise was unprecedented. From the political point of view, this enterprise might be regarded as the irremissible crime and capital fault of Napoleon. He knew that the princes still assembled at the Congress, that Europe still under arms would not suffer him to be reinstated. His judgment must have warned him that a success, if he obtained one, would be only for a day. He was offering up to his passion for reappearing on the scene the repose of a people which had lavished its blood and its treasures upon him. He was laying open to dismemberment the country from which he derived all that he had been in the past and all that he will be in the future. In this fantastic conception lay a ferocious egoism and a terrible absence of gratitude and generosity towards France. All this is true according to practical reason, for a man with a heart rather than brains. But, for beings of Napoleon's nature, there exists a reason of another sort. Those creatures of lofty renown have ways of their own. Comets describe curves which evade calculation. They belong to nothing. They seem good for nothing. 
If a globe finds itself on their passage, they shatter it and return into the abysses of the sky. Their laws are known to God alone. Extraordinary individuals are monuments of human intelligence. They are not its rule. Bonaparte, therefore, was persuaded to his enterprise less by the false reports of his friends than by the needs of his genius. He took up the cross by virtue of the faith that was in him. To a great man, to be born is not everything. He must die. Was Elba an end for Napoleon? Could he accept the sovereignty of a vegetable patch, like Diocletian at Salona? If he had waited till later, would he have had more chances of success, at a time when his memory would have aroused less emotion, when his old soldiers would have left the army, when new social positions would have been adopted? Well, then, he committed a foolhardy act against the world. At the commencement he must have believed that he had not deceived himself as to the spell of his power. One night, that of the 25th of February, at the end of a ball of which the Princess Borghese was doing the honours, he made his escape with victory, along his comrade and accomplice. He crossed a sea covered with our fleets, met two frigates, a ship of seventy-four guns, and the man-of-war brig Zephyr, which spoke and questioned him. He himself replied to the captain's questions. The sea and the wave saluted him, and he pursued his course. The deck of the inconstant, his little ship, served him as a room for exercise and as a writing-closet. He dictated amid the winds, and had copies made on that shifting table, of three proclamations to the army and to France. Some feluccas, carrying his companions in adventure, flew the white flag strewn with stars around his admiral bark. On the 1st of March, at three o'clock in the morning, he struck the coast of France between Cannes and Antibes, in the Gulf Juan. He landed, strolled along the Riviera, gathered violets and bivouacked in a plantation of olive trees. The dumbfounded population retired. He avoided Antibes and threw himself into the mountains of grass, passing through Senon, Baem, Guine, and Gap. At Cisteron, twenty men could have stopped him, and he found nobody. He went on, meeting no obstacle among those inhabitants who, a few months earlier, had wished to cut his throat. Whenever a few soldiers entered the void which formed around his gigantic shadow, they were invincibly drawn on by the attraction of his eagles. His fascinated enemies sought him and did not see him. He hid himself in his glory, as the lion of the Sahara hides himself in the rays of the sun to avoid the sight of the dazzled hunters. Enveloped in a fiery cyclone, the bloody phantoms of Ariola, Marengo, Austerlitz, Jena, Friedland, Eilau, the Moskova, Lutzen, Bautzen, formed his retinue with a million of dead. From the midst of this column of fire and smoke there issued, at the entrance to the towns, a few trumpet blasts, mingled with the signals of the tricoloured labarum, and the gates of the town fell. When Napoleon crossed the Neman, at the head of four hundred thousand foot and a hundred thousand horse, to blow up the palace of the Tsars in Moscow, he was less astonished than when, breaking his ban and flinging his irons in the faces of the kings, he came alone from Cannes to Paris, to sleep peacefully at the Tuileries. Beside the prodigy of the invasion of one man must be placed another, which was the consequence of the first. The legitimacy was seized with a fainting fit. The failure of the heart of the state attacked the members and rendered France motionless. For twenty days Bonaparte marched on by stages. His eagles flew from steeple to steeple, and, along a road of two hundred leagues, the government, masters of everything, disposing of money and men, found neither the time nor the means to cut a bridge, to throw down a tree so as to delay at least by an hour, the progress of a man to whom the populations offered no opposition, but whom also they did not follow. This torpor on the part of the government seemed the more deplorable inasmuch as public opinion in Paris was greatly excited. It would have countenanced anything, despite the defection of Marshal Ney. Benjamin Constant wrote in the newspapers. After visiting our country with every plague, he left the soil of France, 
who would not have thought that he was leaving it forever? Suddenly he appears, and again promises Frenchmen liberty, victory, and peace. The author of the most tyrannical constitution that ever ruled France, he speaks to-day of liberty. But it was he who, during fourteen years, undermined and destroyed liberty. He had not the excuse of memory, the habit of power. He was not born in the purple. It was his fellow-citizens whom he enslaved, his equals whom he loaded with chains. He had not inherited power. He desired and meditated tyranny. What liberty is he able to promise? Are we not a thousand times more free than under his empire? He promises victory, and three times he forsook his troops, in Egypt, in Spain, and in Russia, abandoning his companions in arms to the triple agony of cold, destitution, and despair. He brought upon France the humiliation of invasion. He lost the conquests which we had made before him. He promises peace, and his name alone is a signal for war. The nation unhappy enough to serve him would again become the object of European hatred. His triumph would be the commencement of a combat to the death against the civilized world. He has therefore nothing to claim, nor to offer. Whom could he convince, or whom seduce? War at home, war abroad. Those are the gifts which he brings us. Marshal Sow's Order of the Day, dated 8th March, 1815, repeats very nearly the ideas of Benjamin Constant, with an effusion of loyalty. Soldiers, the man who lately before the eyes of Europe abdicated the power which he had usurped, and which he had so fatally abused, has landed on French soil, which he was never to see again. What does he want? Civil war. What does he seek? Traitors. Where will he find them? Shall it be among those soldiers whom he has so often deceived and sacrificed by misleading their valour? Shall it be in the heart of those families which the mere sound of his name still fills with terror? Bonaparte despises us enough to believe us capable of abandoning a lawful and dearly beloved sovereign to share the fate of a man who is no longer more than an adventurer. He believes this, the madman, and his last act of insanity reveals him to us as he is. Soldiers, the French army is the bravest army in Europe. It will also be the most faithful. Let us rally round the banner of the lilies, at the voice of the father of the people, the worthy heir of the virtues of Henry the Great. He himself has traced for you the duties which you have to fulfil. He places at your head that prince, the model of French knighthood, who, by his happy return to our country, has already once driven out the usurper, and who to-day, by his presence among us, will destroy his soul and last hope. Louis the Eighteenth appeared on the 16th of March in the Chamber of Deputies. The destinies of France and of the world were at stake. When His Majesty entered, the deputies and the strangers in the galleries uncovered and rose. Cheers shook the walls of the house. Louis XVIII slowly mounted the steps of his throne. The princes, the marshals, and the captains of the guards ranged themselves on either side of the king. The cheers ceased, none spoke. In that interval of silence, one seemed to hear the distant footsteps of Napoleon. His Majesty, seated, cast his eyes over the assembly, and in a firm voice delivered this speech. Gentlemen, at this critical moment, when the public enemy has penetrated into a part of my kingdom, and threatens the liberty of all the remainder, I come into your midst to knit yet more closely the ties which, uniting you to myself, constitute the strength of the State. I come by addressing you to make manifest my feelings and my wishes to the whole of France. I have seen my country again. I have reconciled it with foreign powers, who will, you may be sure, be faithful to the treaties which have restored peace to us. I have laboured for the good of my people. I have received, I continue daily to receive, the most touching marks of its love. Could I, at sixty years of age, better end my career than by dying in its defence? I fear nothing, therefore, for myself. 
but I fear for France. He who comes to kindle among us the torches of civil war brings with him also the scourge of foreign war. He comes to put back our country under his iron yoke. He comes, lastly, to destroy the constitutional charter which I have given you, that charter which will be my proudest title in the eyes of posterity, that charter which all Frenchmen cherish, and which I here swear to maintain. Let us then rally round it. The king was still speaking, when a fog spread darkness through the house. Eyes were turned towards the ceiling to ascertain the cause of that sudden gloom. When the king lawgiver ceased to speak, the cries of, Long live the king! were renewed amid tears. The assembly, the monitor truly says, electrified by the king's sublime words, stood up, its hands stretched towards the throne. One heard only the words, Long live the king! We will die for the king! The king in life and death! repeated with an enthusiasm which will be shared by every French heart. It was, in fact, a pathetic sight, an old infirm king, who, in reward for the murder of his family and twenty-three years of exile, had brought France peace, liberty, forgiveness of all outrages and all misfortunes, this patriarch of sovereigns, coming to declare to the deputies of the nation that, at his age, after seeing his country again, he could not better end his career than by dying in defence of his people. The princes swore fidelity to the charter. Those tardy oaths were closed with that of the Prince de Condé and with the adhesion of the father of the Duc d'Enghien. This heroic race on the verge of extinction, this race of the patrician sword seeking behind liberty a shield against a younger, longer, and more cruel plebeian sword offered, by reason of a multitude of memories, a spectacle that was extremely sad. When Louis XVIII's speech became known outside, it aroused unspeakable enthusiasm. Paris was wholly royalist, and remained so during the hundred days. The women, in particular, were Bourbonists. The youth of today worships the memory of Bonaparte, because it is humiliated by the part which the present government makes France play in Europe. The youth of 1814 hailed the Restoration, because the latter had thrown down despotism and set up liberty. In the ranks of the royal volunteers were included Monsieur Odilon Barreau, a large number of pupils of the School of Medicine, and the whole of the School of Law. The last, on the 13th of March, addressed this petition to the Chamber of Deputies. Gentlemen, we offer our services to our King and country. The whole School of Law asks to go to the front. We will abandon neither our King nor our Constitution. Faithful to French honour, we ask you for arms. The feeling of love which we bear to Louis XVIII is answerable to you for the constancy of our devotion. We want no more irons, we want liberty. We have it, and they come to snatch it from us. We will defend it to the death. Long live the King. Long live the Constitution. In this energetic, natural, and sincere language, one feels the generosity of youth and the love of liberty. They who come to tell us today that the Restoration was received by France with dislike and sorrow are ambitious men who are playing a game, or newcomers who have never known Bonaparte's oppression or old imperialized revolutionary liars who, after applauding the return of the Bourbons with the rest, now, according to their habit, insult the fallen, and return to their instincts of murder, police, and servitude. The King's speech had filled me with hope. Conferences were held at the house of the President of the Chamber of Deputies, Monsieur Lenné. I there met Monsieur de Lafayette. I had never seen him except at a distance, at another period, under the Constituent Assembly. The proposals were various, and for the most part weak, as happens in peril. Some wished the king to leave Paris and fall back upon the Havre. Others spoke of moving him to the Vendée. One stammered out unfinished sentences, 
Another said that we must wait and see what was coming. What was coming was very visible for all that. I expressed a very different opinion. Oddly enough, Monsieur de Lafayette supported it, and warmly. Monsieur Lenné and Marshal Marmont were also of my opinion. I said, let the king keep his word, let him stay in his capital. The National Guard is on our side. Let us make sure of Vincennes. We have the arms and the money. With the money we shall overcome weakness and cupidity. If the king leaves Paris, Paris will admit Bonaparte. Bonaparte, master of Paris, is master of France. The army has not gone over to the enemy as a whole. Several regiments, many generals and officers, have not yet betrayed their oaths. If we hold firm, they will remain faithful. Let us disperse the royal family. Let us keep only the king. Let monsieur go to the Havre, the Duc de Berry to Lille, the Duc de Bourbon to the Vendée, the Duc d'Orléans to Metz. Madame la Duchesse and Monsieur le Duc d'Angoulême are already in the south. Our different points of resistance will prevent Bonaparte from concentrating his forces. Let us barricade ourselves in Paris. Already the National Guards of the neighbouring departments are coming to our aid. Amid this movement, our old monarch, protected by the will of Louis XVI, will remain peacefully seated on his throne at the Tuileries, with the charter in his hand. The diplomatic body will range itself round him. The two chambers will meet in the two wings of the palace. The king's household will encamp in the carousel and in the Tuileries gardens. We shall line the quays and the water terrace with guns. Let Bonaparte attack us in this position. Let him carry our barricades one by one. Let him bombard Paris, if he please, and if he have mortars. Let him make himself odious to the whole population, and we shall see the result of his enterprise. Let us resist for but three days, and victory is ours. The king, defending himself in his palace, will arouse universal enthusiasm. Lastly, if he must die, let him die worthy of his rank. Let Napoleon's last exploit be to cut an old man's throat. Louis Eighteenth, in sacrificing his life, will win the only battle he will have fought. He will win it for the benefit of the freedom of the human race. Thus I spoke. One is never entitled to say that all is lost, so long as one has attempted nothing. What could have been finer than an old son of St. Louis overthrowing with Frenchmen in a few moments, a man whom all the confederate kings of Europe had taken so many years to lay low? This resolution, desperate in appearance, was very reasonable at bottom, and offered not the smallest danger. I shall always remain convinced that had Bonaparte found Paris hostile, and the king present, he would not have tried to force them. Without artillery, provisions, or money, he had with him only troops collected at random, still wavering, astonished at their sudden change of cockade, at their oaths taken headlong on the roads. They would promptly have become divided. A few hours' delay, and Napoleon was lost. It but needed a little heart. Already, even, we could rely on a portion of the army. The two Swiss regiments were keeping their faith. Did not Marshal Gouvion Saint-Cyr make the Orléans garrison resume the white cockade, two days after Bonaparte's entry into Paris? From Marseille to Bordeaux, all recognised the king's authority during the whole month of March. At Bordeaux, the troops were hesitating. They would have remained with Madame la Duchesse d'Angoulême if the news had come that the king was at the Tuileries and that Paris was being defended. The provincial towns would have imitated Paris. The 10th Regiment of the Line fought very well under the Duc d'Angoulême. Massena was proving himself crafty and uncertain. At Lille, the garrison responded to Marshal Mortier's stirring proclamation. If all those proofs of a possible fidelity took place in spite of a flight, what would they not have been in the case of a resistance? Had my plan been adopted, the foreigners would not have ravaged France afresh. Our princes would not have returned with the hostile armies. The legitimacy would have been saved through itself. One thing alone would have to be feared after success. 
the too great confidence of the royalty in its strength, and consequently attempts upon the rights of the nation. Why did I arrive at a period in which I was so ill-placed? Why have I been a royalist against my instinct at a time when a miserable race of courtiers was unable either to hear or to understand me? Why was I flung into that troop of mediocrities who took me for a raver when I spoke of courage, for a revolutionary when I spoke of liberty? A fine question of defence indeed. The king had no fear, and my plan rather pleased him through a certain Louis Quatorzian grandeur, but other faces had lengthened. They packed up the crown diamonds, formerly purchased out of the privy purse of the sovereigns, leaving thirty-three million crowns in the treasury and forty-two millions in securities. Those sixty-five millions were the produce of taxation. Why was it not returned to the people, rather than left to tyranny? A dual procession passed up and down the staircases of the pavillon de Flore. People were asking what they were to do. No answer. They applied to the captain of the guards. They questioned the chaplains, the precentors, the almoners, nothing. Vain talk, vain retailing of news. I saw young men weep with rage when uselessly asking for orders and arms. I saw women faint with anger and contempt. Access to the king was impossible. Etiquette closed the door. The great measure decreed against Bonaparte was an order to hunt him down. Louis the Eighteenth, with no legs, hunting down the conqueror who bestrode the earth. This form of the ancient laws, renewed for the occasion, is enough to show the compass of mind of the statesmen of that period. To hunt down in 1815? Hunt down. And hunt whom? Hunt a wolf? Hunt a brigand chieftain? Hunt a felon lord? No, hunt Napoleon, who had hunted down kings, who had seized and branded them for all time on the shoulder with his indelible N. From this order, when considered more closely, sprang a political truth which no one saw. The legitimate house, estranged from the nation for three-and-twenty years, had remained at the day and place at which the revolution had caught it, whereas the nation had progressed in point of time and space. Hence the impossibility of understanding and meeting one another. Religion, ideas, interests, language, earth and heaven, all were different for the people and for the king, because they were separated by a quarter of a century, equivalent to centuries. But if the order to hunt down appears strange, owing to the preservation of the old idiom of the law, had Bonaparte originally the intention of acting better, although employing a newer language. Papers of M. d'Autrive, catalogued by M. Artaud, prove that it caused great difficulty to prevent Napoleon from having the Duc d'Angoulême shot, in spite of the official document in the Moniteur, a show document which remains to us. He thought it wrong of the prince to have defended himself, and yet the fugitive from Elba, when leaving Fontainebleau, had recommended the soldiers to be faithful to the monarch, whom France had chosen. Bonaparte's family had been respected. Queen Hortense had accepted from Louis XVIII the title of Duchesse de Saint-Lieu. Murat, who still reigned in Naples, saw his kingdom sold by Monsieur de Talleyrand only during the Congress of Vienna. This period, in which all are lacking in frankness, oppresses the heart. Everyone threw out a profession of faith as it were a footbridge to cross the difficulty of the day, free to change his direction, the difficulty once passed. Youth alone was sincere because it was near its cradle. Bonaparte solemnly declared that he renounced the crown. He departed and returned after nine months. Benjamin Constant printed his vehement protests against the tyrant, and he changed in twenty-four hours. It will be seen later in another book of these memoirs who inspired him with the noble impulse to which the fickleness of his nature did not permit him to remain faithful. Marshal So excited the troops against their old leader. A few days later he was roaring with laughter at his own proclamation in Napoleon's closet at the Tuileries, and became major-general of the army at Waterloo. 
Marshal Ney kissed the king's hands, swore to bring him Bonaparte locked up in an iron cage, and handed over to the latter all the corps under his command. And the king of France, alas! He declared that at the age of sixty years he could not better end his career than by dying in defence of his people, and fled to Ghent. At sight of this incapacity for truth in men's feelings, at the want of harmony between their words and their deeds, one feels seized with disgust for the human kind. Louis the eighteenth on the sixteenth of March was declaring his intention of dying in the midst of France. Had he kept his word, the legitimacy might have lasted another century. Nature herself seemed to have taken from the old king the power of retreating, by chaining him about with wholesome infirmities. But the future destinies of the human race would have been trammelled by the accomplishment of the resolution of the author of the charter. Bonaparte hastened to the assistance of the future. That Christ of the power for evil took the new man sick of the palsy by the hand and said to him, Arise, take up thy bed and walk. End of Book Four, Part One.